Welcome back to Minds Matter. I'm Beth. And I'm Ava. And this week I had a chat with Dr. Y.C. Leong, who's an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Chicago, and he's the lab director of the Motivation and Cognition Neuroscience Lab. My name is Y.C. Leong. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Chicago. I study how our goals, desires, and beliefs affect how we see, how we think, and how we make decisions. In my research, I use computational tools such as computational modeling and statistics and machine learning, and in some cases, deep learning and artificial intelligence. I also use neuroscience techniques such as functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI, and also functional near-infrared or FNIRS, and I use behavioral experiments to basically understand how people make decisions and how their prior beliefs, goals, and desires affect those decisions and processes involved. Because your work involves cognitive biases, could you just explain what that actually means and what they are? Sure. The way I see it, I think of them as systematic biases and how people think. The analogy I like to use is a bit like optical illusions. So you know how with an optical illusion, you know it's an illusion, yet you still can't help but see it. I tend to think of cognitive biases as somewhat similar to that, in the sense that even though you're biased to think in a certain way, for example, you're biased to confirm your beliefs, or you're biased to see the way in the world that you want to see it, you nevertheless can't help but to almost fall prey to it. You might try to convince yourself it's not the case and you might succeed, but the initial impulse of having the tendency to be biased by a particular set of cognitive biases is usually pretty automatic. So I tend to think of them as optical illusions, but for the mind. And are there reasons why we would have these biases do they help us in some way or yeah why would we have developed to have these i think that's a very good question from an evolutionary perspective i can think of a couple of couple of reasons why we would develop these biases one of them is that sometimes it's a wave of saving time, saving effort, saving mental resources and being able to make decisions quickly even though the decisions might not be fully optimal, if you will, because thinking and deliberating might take too long. So we want to jump into it from a perspective of making decisions quickly and being efficient with our resources. That's not a bad thing. Another reason is that with regards to some of the motivational biases, such as seeing things you want to see, the stuff that I study, I would say that another reason is that basically seeing the world in a way that you want to see it or feeling good about yourself. These are things that make you motivated to work harder, work towards your goals. So for example, a well-known bias is that we tend to think of ourselves as more likely to experience positive events in life and less likely to experience negative events. That's called unrealistic optimism. Like why would we be unrealistically optimistic? One of the reasons is that if we were optimistic, it gives us hope, it gives us energy, it gives us motivation, and we work harder. We to fulfill the things that we want to achieve and that has an advantage. And if the bias is not so detrimental that it causes us to lose grip of reality, that additional push, that additional energy can be very powerful. Your work also looks at yeah, how you briefly mentioned how motivation biases perception. Could you explain a bit about that and some of the work you've done in that area? Of course. It's a broad topic area. I can only focus on, I would say, a snippet of it. But one of the things that I study, another way of referring to it is wishful seeing. 
how people see what they want to see. The idea being that we don't always see the world as it is. We see it as how we want it to be or wish it to be. And for a long time, people have debated, do people actually see what they want to see? Or are they just saying that? The example I like to give is imagine playing tennis and then you hit a ball that may or may not have just grazed the sideline, was it in or out? Would your motivation to win the point make you more likely to see the ball as having gone in if it's your shot? And we know from experience that we've seen this in sporting arenas and in sport games and such. People are biased to support the team that they want to support, but are they just saying that? <laughs> or do they really see the outcome as different? Or do they just remember it differently? There are many possible explanations for the phenomena. And one thing that my research tries to do is to really understand the nature of these biases as they are implemented in the brain. So in some of my experiments, I show composite images of faces and scenes that I average together such that they're this morphed average image of one superimposed on the other, so kind of part face, part scene. I have people tell me whether they see a face or a scene, but I also motivate them to see the face of the scene based on financial monetary incentives. And what I then do is to see if that motivation changes what they say they saw, but also what they represent and how they respond to the image in their brains. And the reason why I use faces and scenes is because we know that faces and scenes are encoded in different areas of the brain or rather in different patterns of activity in the brain. And so we can actually decode what the brain is representing as they are seeing these images. So we can go beyond just what they say they saw, but also how their brains are representing the image. And what we found was that motivation not only biases people's perceptual judgments, like what people say, their perceptual reports, but also biases the neural representation of the image that they are seeing. So when they want to see more scene, there is more scene-related activity in the brain, suggesting that it's truly a bias in the sensory representations in the brain, and it's not just a simple response bias. So that's one of the projects that, that we've been doing for a while. Because that was one of the questions we wanted to ask was how do you untangle this are people just reporting the bias or are they actually experiencing the bias? So I assume when you see this response pattern in the brain, we can then say that they're experiencing the world with this bias? I think at the end of the day, this is one study and I don't want yeah. to claim the conclusion. And of course, we don't really have, and this is a philosophical thing, right? Yeah. We don't really have direct access to people's perceptual experience, the quality of things, if you will. And I don't know if I can go as far as to say that, but from the perspective as someone interested in decision-making, in how people represent things in the world, I can't say for sure, at least I don't feel comfortable saying that this shows that people are literally seeing something different, but the way that I would frame it is really how they are representing it in their brains. Because at the moment of perception, it could be that they didn't see it that way, but the brain represents it. And at the end of the day, it is this representation that then guides people as they make decisions after the fact. So I think that representation is very important. And with regards to perception, I would say that this interpretation of seeing something different is consistent with it. So I don't want to pull back too much, but yeah. I do think that it's very consistent with this idea. But when it comes to things like perceptual experience, it's always difficult to make a conclusive statement. But I do think that the work goes a little beyond like the behavioral work that we've shown. At least we can show that people aren't just lying. 
Yeah. <laughs> if people were purely lying, I don't think that you would see this difference in the neural representation. It's literally, they would be representing a face, for example, and then saying a scene, but they know they're lying. Instead, if anything, it could mean that they trick themselves, perhaps, but I would say that at the very least, we've gone beyond the past work showing or the past work which can't at all disentangle biases in responses versus biases in sensory encoding. Because YC does work on motivated reasoning and specifically how goals and beliefs influence perception, so base level perception, um, this makes him part of a longstanding debate in social psychology. And this debate started in the 50s when I think for us, maybe now it seems I actually don't know. I'm curious if it seems obvious, like if you're listening to this and you think it's very normal and you wouldn't think it any other way that your goals might influence the way that you see the world and the way that you view the world, or whether you think that makes no sense and that you see what you, and then you reason about it differently or you interpret it differently. But I think if you think about optical illusions, like that dress that broke the internet a few years ago that was blue and black or white and gold and people really saw it as one or the other and it was crazy I think the first time I saw it I think I was with someone and I showed them the dress and I, I didn't understand what the post was even talking about because I saw it as clearly white and gold and the person next to me was like what are you talking about so that makes it feel like we're really actually seeing something different like our brains are seeing something different not just interpreting it in a different way. But essentially, this has been a very long-standing debate of are these top-down, quote-unquote, processes, which just mean your goals, your beliefs, higher-level things than just sensory perception, the light bouncing off of the environment that you're taking in. So there's top-level and lower-level. So that lower-level is perception, so basic perception, and top-level is goals and things like that whether those goals actually influence what you're actually seeing or just the interpretation or just the response. So I think it's just good for us to contextualize where he is in this debate because he is one of the people who's continuing on this discussion. And I think from what he said in the episode, I don't know how hard he falls on either line, but I do think that his research, I think it does show evidence for both of these types of answers. Um, and I think that also came out in some of what he was saying about how it's often a mix of all of those potential responses. Another one of your studies found that liberals and conservatives had different brain responses when watching the same videos. Could you explain that study? Sure. So in that study, we recruited conservatives and liberals in America, in the American political context, and we brought them into the lab and used fMRI to measure their neural responses as they watched 24 videos on immigration policy. So for context, this was around the time when immigration was like the particularly hot topic issue in America, when there were discussions of whether we want to build a wall along the Mexican-American border, who we choose to ban from coming into the country. So it was a hotly contested topic. So that was the context or atmosphere in which we did this experiment. And essentially, the experiment was very straightforward. All we told the participants to do is to just sit back in the scanner and just watch these videos as you would watch the news or 
maybe a video on Facebook or Twitter, which is what most people do nowadays instead of the news. But so each minute video was about two minutes long at something that they could see in their daily lives and they just watched it. And what we were interested in is to see how brain activity diverged between groups, between conservatives and liberals as they watched these videos. What we found was that activity was more similar among liberal participants watching the same set of videos and conservative participants watching the same set of videos, but they were different between the two groups. So it's almost as neuroactivity consistently diverged between the two groups such that each group responded to the videos in a distinct way suggesting that they were, in fact, processing these videos differently. So we call this neurodivergence or neuropolarization. We didn't find evidence of neuropolarization in early sensory areas of the brain, suggesting that in this case, there is very little evidence that they're literally seeing something differently, because there is no difference in how the visual areas of the brain or the auditory areas of the brain responded to this video. Instead, what we found was that only activity in the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, which is a higher order brain region that cares about interpretation and semantic content, that was the only region in the brain where we saw neuropolarization, suggesting that these differences had to do with something about the actual meaning of the message. And so we wanted to look at, okay, so what about the messages was driving this divergence? So what we did was then to basically go back to the videos and examine what type of semantic content or what type of language is more likely to drive greater divergence in the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. And we found that segments of the videos that contained moral emotional words or threat-related words were more likely to drive stronger divergence, suggesting that these words related to morality and emotion and words related to threat are more likely to induce stronger differences in how conservatives and liberals responded to the video. And then the last part of the study was, okay, does this matter? Does this mean anything? And what we found was that the degree of neuropolarization or the degree in which your brain activity was more similar to a particular group, liberal or conservative, predicted your attitude change after watching the video. So if your brain activity was more similar to a liberal, the average liberal participant while watching the video, after the video, you're like, I'm supporting the liberal position a little bit more. So suggesting that having a different interpretation, responding differently to these videos can actually predict policy attitude positions, if you will. I would say that's the core three findings of that particular study. Yeah, that's super interesting. What does that mean for then? So if we want just say a conservative person to take on a liberal perspective, but they're going to represent the information in this way. Would that change how we should communicate information? Because if people are already going to have this bias processing, how then do people who have these very strong views learn new perspectives? Is this possible or is this something that's very difficult to achieve? So I would like to think that it's possible. I think that's a very important question. I would say that there isn't enough research on it, or at least the conclusions, like we don't know enough about it yet, but I would like to think it's possible. And so that would be my first response to it. My perspective, and again, this is all speculation, is that we actually do have the ability to take on the perspective of another group. We know enough about the other group that we could reasonably adopt it. Perspective-taking exercises have been shown to improve intergroup relationships, including in political context, suggesting that 
if we were to instruct and not just instruct, but also motivate, I think that's the important part, right? If we can motivate people to take the other side's perspective, you would, neurally, you would find that their brain responses might become more similar to the other side, but also because they've taken their exercise and considered that the other perspective, I would like to think that creates both empathy and ability to connect with the other side and would aid in achieving middle ground and consensus. So that would be my first response to that question. The second response to that question actually is that two groups really had different perspectives. Understanding that perspective might allow you to pitch a particular policy or a particular issue in certain words and certain very particular viewpoints that might be very persuasive to the other group. And that would be the other way of trying to bridge it, where it's not just that you're taking perspective and understanding that position and therefore maybe getting convinced by that, but also if your aim is to convince, taking a perspective can also be helpful. So yeah. that's how I think about when it comes to interventions of political issues. Especially with the interventions that Beth, you were asking about, I thought it was interesting because there is some work that has shown, as YC was hinting at, that liberals and conservatives do care about different things. So we have these fundamentally different moral values. And so this work is from the 2000s, from Jonathan Haidt and a lot of his colleagues that basically showed time and time again that liberals have these core values of care and protection and equality and fairness, among other things. And that for conservatives, the values are more about loyalty and purity and patriotism and respecting authority. So those are really different values. And you might have had this experience in your own life, whatever side of the aisle that you're on, trying to convince someone who's on the other side of the political spectrum about a certain policy or something like that, that you might try to be convincing them based on your moral values. So there's this cool work that's been done by Rob Willer, who's a sociologist and social psychologist, I think at Stanford. And they basically asked liberals and conservatives to write these letters, trying to convince the other side of something. So for the liberals, I think they were trying to convince the conservatives of marriage equality. So this was, I think this was before marriage equality was achieved in the US. But basically, he found that 80% of the liberals were saying things like everyone should have equal rights. So trying to use this moral value of equality, that's actually their own moral value. And that only about 9% of the liberals were using the conservatives' moral values of loyalty and purity. And so we're just really bad at basically trying to explain our side to another person. And that's why we often tend to talk past each other rather than talk to each other. And that the conservatives did the same thing. So they were also only using the values that the liberals would respond to when they were trying to convince them. I think of English being the official language of the US, which I didn't know that wasn't. But they were only using liberal moral values about also 5 to 10% of the time. And so they then did these studies on so-called moral reframing, where they had a message about climate change being reframed for conservatives as not that we should be protecting and caring about our planet and creating equality through climate protections, but they instead reframed it as we should be keeping our environment pure and reducing pollution will lead to our environment staying beautiful and pristine, this type of argument. 
And so for conservatives, when they got this moral reframing, this did make an influence on their support for policy. So they were actually more supportive of climate change policy. And even crazier, they were more likely to say in general that they believed in climate change and that they thought that global warming was something that you needed to do something about to the same degree as the liberals in the study. So in that condition where they got this purity reframing, they actually cared about global warming the same amount, which was not the issue at hand necessarily. So I thought that was a really interesting insight and demonstration of what YC was talking about, where he was saying that you really need to understand the phenomenon first, where first with this research from Jonathan Haidt, they were looking at what are the moral values and the differences between liberals and conservatives. And then this work by Rob Willer really looked at okay, how can we apply that and actually create interventions? So I think that was just some cool examples of what YC was hinting at in the work that I guess ultimately he's looking to do as well with, I think, a little bit more fancier methods. (laughs) I think it's super interesting because another thing with that study is what I think is really interesting. When does this kind of difference in how they are interpreting the information, when does that start? (laughs) So I don't think, and I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure we're not born (laughs) with that. So that's probably a product of our environment and our experiences and what we're exposed to. But at what stage is it like this sticky thing? So does it become sticky when we're in college? Does it become like this sticky thing when we're in primary school? Yeah. At what stage does it become something that's, no, this is how I'm interpreting this. That's not a conscious decision, but when is that formed? Yeah. I don't know. That's a good question. I wonder if it's a developmental stage or if it's just a point at which maybe people cement certain kinds of values. And I think there's at least colloquially stories of people who, when they were younger, maybe were very liberal and then become conservative or Mm -hmm. vice versa, or people who were raised in more conservative homes. I think there's this narrative a lot that they were raised in these conservative homes and that then they go to college. Also conservative people say this stuff that these liberal colleges turn their children into left-wing demon type things but where I'm sure that people go through this transformation at some point where they're seeing things from one side and then flip to the other side but yeah I think the question you asked about how do we use this knowledge to then bring people to the middle is a really good question and I'm not sure when that happens but maybe it would be cool to study people I don't know how you would find them but people who are on the brink of changing how they're interpreting the world I think it's also something you have to think about the education as well. Maybe the education is also forming us one way or the other. And because we did grow up in liberal families and went to liberal colleges, which obviously we feel very strongly about, but then are we in this sticky position too? So we can't understand the other point of view and that probably isn't the best way to be either. So I think also in terms of interventions, it's nice to think about what could education look like when we're developing so we can have these more, yeah, understanding points of view. You have used the reinforcement learning framework in your work. Could you just explain a bit what that is and what that can tell us about the brain and behavior? That is, that (laughs) could be an entire podcast. (laughs) So I apologize. If, if I go off tangent, because there's so much in there. 
So I would say, briefly speaking, reinforcement learning is both a field, a class of models, and a type of problems. That's classically how I would present it. That the basic premise of it is really this idea: how can we learn from feedback of good and bad to change and update the way that we do things? I would say that's a very layperson way of explaining it. That captures most of the essence of it. The key component is reinforcement, which is like good or bad, and that's the only signal you get whether something is better than expected or worse than expected, or good or bad. And also, what do you learn from it? How do you adapt decision-making strategies to better achieve increased reward, if you will? And there is a lot of evidence that the brain does this in the sense that the models that have come up from reinforcement learning have been shown to track activity patterns, activity profiles, if you will, of particular types of brain areas and particular types of the roles of particular neurotransmitters. And I'm trying to do this without going into specific detail, but the basic idea is that it seems that the brain does reinforcement learning, or at least some. Similar version of it that can be emulated by these computational models that we have, and so there is this sort of really nice synergy between reinforcement learning, which is I'm hesitating here because I was about to say a field in computer science, but really if you think about the history of reinforcement learning, which is really cool, is something that kind of came from computer science that drew inspiration from psychology, and then now it's coming back in the psychology of neuroscience from computer science. So there is like that. History of intertwinedness, and it's continuing to be the case. But the point, the broader point that I was trying to make was that sort of there is this cross fertilization and synergy of the work that people are doing in deep learning, which is essentially the combination of reinforcement learning with neural networks and what we are trying to study in the brain. The reinforcement learning, if you will, provides a form of architecture and algorithm for us to be able to understand, or at least partially understand. What's going on in the brain? As I said, I try to condense a lot in like a couple of sentences. It's a lot more nuanced than that. But in my view, what has been really valuable is this ability to describe the brain in very quantitative and mathematical terms that allows us to make predictions and doing it in a way that kind of suits biology because reinforcement learning, ultimately, in my opinion at least, is about how do we optimize things to get better rewards. And from the perspective of biology, that really is, the, in my view, the ultimate goal and purpose, or the ultimate goal of how biological machines are designed. So some of your work has shown that attention shapes learning. Yeah, the way that I would frame that line of work is: How do we really know what to attend to at any given moment? How do we choose what to learn about?、Right? The world is very complex. When something happens, there's so much information. What do you choose to take away from it? And so we have to figure out a way to be able to focus and to decide that oh, this is the cause of that. This is the cause of that, and I'm going to learn about this particular thing because my attention is limited and I can only choose to focus on a particular subset of the information that I have. How do I do that? One way is to learn about it. So you have this kind of dynamic interaction, if you will, between learning on one hand and attention on one hand. So you learn what to attend, but because your attention is constrained to a subset of the environment, you're also only learning about that part of the environment. So what this Means and this is related to the second part of your question. I think is that on one hand you can learn what is worthy of being attended to, but That also might mean, as a result, you become a little bit more narrow-minded, or at least narrow-focused in your attention, 
And you might lose the bigger picture or lose the ability to learn about things that are more peripheral, which might not be a good thing. So it's always a balance between how broad you want your attention to be versus how quickly you want to learn. Because once you diffuse your attention, suddenly you're like, ah, it's too much. I can't learn all that at the same time. So there is this delicate balance between how much to attend versus how much to learn. And ultimately, I do think that we can learn to attend the good stuff, if you will. I think because attention guides so much of learning and decision making, being able to reward your mind to attend to certain aspects of the world is probably evolutionally adaptive thing to do. And I bet it's something the brain does and people do it automatically. What is problematic is when we find our attention drawn to things that aren't good, but somehow other mechanisms have kicked into play to block us there. And then we can't zone out because we're so kept into it already. That itself is an entire area of research that has to do with psychopathology that I'm not an expert on, but I would say that is a big part of how can we learn to attend to what is good and break away, disengage from the bad, if you will. Yeah, because I was going to ask, how do we learn what we should attend to? And I'm thinking that from your perspective, it would be our motivations would shape how we learn what we should attend to yeah i would agree with that it's almost as a motivation it's the person behind the car driving where we decide to attend so being able to understand motivation like why do we do the things we do is a big part of understanding the eventual focus of our attention and having the sort of appropriate motivations like being drawn to the good for you will versus being anxious and being very motivated to avoid the pain, for example, might actually make you focus on the negative stuff. So what I'm trying to get at is you're totally right that a big part of what we attend to depends on our goals and having the right goals can often be very adaptive and healthy functioning. Could explain what unrealistic optimism bias and advice taking actually is. I think there are two parts of it. The first part is what is unrealistic optimism. And I think we should address that first and then we can talk about it. But particularly in the context of advice taking. So the way I think about unrealistic optimism is really the fact that people are overly optimistic about the probability of positive things happening. And it's part of the larger phenomenon of people think they're better than they are, that they think they're smarter and they think they are all luck as a result they think that good things might happen to them so it's an entire sort of set of phenomenon of which unrealistic optimism is a part where people are just optimistic in a way that is somewhat counter to the evidence that they see that's the second part of it right that it's not just that people are optimistic but they're optimistic in a way that doesn't really jive with the evidence that they have that their optimism is somewhat misplaced. It's more than it should be. In the context of advice taking, we wanted to extend it to an interpersonal context where people aren't just optimistic about themselves, but they can also be overly optimistic about the people that they take advice from. The way that we studied this was like a financial decision-making type context with the idea being that people might place too much trust in the opinions of experts which in itself may not be a bad problem if they can learn from those. And I think the reason why this is unrealistic or this is a suboptimal bias is the fact that despite continuous feedback that an expert advisor is not as expert as you think they are, you continue to take their advice because it's not bad enough that it's so obvious it's wrong, but it's just in that gray area of being uninformative 
But yet you're just like, yeah, they got it right enough. I think they're still an expert. I'm still going to take their advice. Even when their advice by design, by experiment and manipulation carries absolutely no information. And people have 300 trials with this advisor. And then they still like, oh, I'm going to still trust your advice. So in a second study, we actually wondered if they would pass down this kind of expectations to other people that they interact with. So we asked them to rate the advisors on a scale of one to five. So obviously there was one really good advisor that's almost always correct, that's rated very highly. One advisor that's pretty much always wrong, that was rated very badly. And then there was one advisor that was in the middle or rather uninformative, which is completely useless advice. And people still rated their advisor as essentially above average, if you will, suggesting that they think that there's some information in this advisor's advice. And then what happens is that we pass those ratings to a second group of participants, and then it exaggerated the biases that people have, such that the second generation of participants who saw these ratings are more biased because they're like, oh yeah, this person said this advice was pretty good, or at least above average, I can trust this advice, and then they get stuck with it. And so the way that I think about unrealistic optimism, bias, and advice taking is really a daily phenomenon where we find ourselves trusting experts more than we should in the case where they actually provide no information. And I do want to say a big caveat about this, which is that sometimes experts do have information. The key thing is not trust experts. That is not my message, but rather be able to discern it in an objective way. And I think that's a big message there, which is that you might not be able to tell when people are pretty much at chance so you want to be discerning but don't take away from it that experts are horrible and i can't trust them that's not what i'm saying so i want to be very clear about that yeah so what would be the benefits of this unrealistic optimism bias in trusting experts but why would we continue to trust them even when they're giving us poor information or chance information So I have a few responses to that. One as someone with a stronger background in social psychology and one as someone with a background in cognitive neuroscience and reinforcement learning. So I'll start with the psychology one first, which is that I think there are many reasons for this. One of them is the fact that we want to place our faith in others so that we can avoid some of the responsibilities of if things don't go right. And if things go, we benefit anyway. But if things don't go right, we can say, nah, that wasn't me. It was the advisor. They led me astray. So I think cognitively and psychologically, there are some benefits for that personally. Another reason is that we might feel compelled to agree with people and conformity is a powerful social force that we are susceptible to and we think that other people might have more information than us and there's so much work suggesting that we tend to conform. Advice taking is just an extreme version of that where instead of just following what people do, you follow what they say they do, but very similar psychological processes are at play. So I think that there are sort of reasons of avoiding blame, but also reasons for thinking that the other person has superior private information and also conformity, essentially. As a reinforcement learning person, I have to say that there is also consistent work that people just generally learn better from positive information. It's just a quirk of the brain, if you will, and we can talk about why that's there. But essentially, this could just be a more high-level implementation or high-level manifestation of the fact that people just learn more from 
positive information and negative information. So if an advisor is 50-50, we upweight the positive 50 and downweight the negative 50, and suddenly we're at chance, uh, where we're at an elevated, inflated belief. I would say that my perspective on psychology and neuroscience and a lot of this is that usually the answer is somewhere in between where it's a bit of everything. And I suspect all of these forces are at play. And there's a bit of the intrinsic machinery of the brain. There's a little bit of the social factors of conformity. And it's a little bit about the self, where it's just, I want to push away the blame. So I think all of this comes together to contribute to a consistent phenomenon. If it was one thing, it wouldn't be that consistent, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that there are so many things coming together at the same time is likely the reason why some of these phenomena are particularly pervasive. And you mentioned that you study rats. I will say that I am curious, like, to what extent do rats have these high-level cognitions? Maybe not. Maybe. So there's also these cross-species differences that can help us tease apart exactly what it is. But hey, maybe rats also don't like to self-blame. So who knows? Yes. <laughs> You may not have an answer to this, but I'm just curious. So recently, obviously, there's been a lot of distrust of experts. So vaccines, all of these kinds of things. So it's the opposite, really, of what we've just been speaking about. Do you have any ideas about what might be going on in in those situations? Yeah, I think there are, there, again, there's always a confluence of factors. And I'm a big fan of Kurt Lewin, who believes in this idea of dynamic force views, that everything is pushing at us in different directions. And where we are in time is just the result of all these influences. But that's a huge preamble to saying that I do think that there are a couple of things at play. And one of it is that now in this particular context, another powerful force has come into play. And that has to do with group processes, the field of group processes, where it's about how we affiliate and identify with groups. And I think part of this is what is driving the distrust of experts, which is there's another group of people who claim to be experts that my in-group believe as experts. It's not that people distrust experts, they just distrust experts that they don't agree with. So what I'm saying is that I think, because I could have flipped that question in a different way, it's not that people don't trust experts, they just don't trust your experts. They still trust (laughs) experts. It's just that the experts happen to be the experts that in their in-group consider experts. So I think um, what you have here is an interaction effect where on one hand, the group processes define who the experts are. And then the unrealistic optimism in expertise results in them not being able to realize the experts are wrong. So it's still there, but there is now a moderation by the higher level sort of social construct of group. So that's just one of many possible explanations of what is going on. There's also this idea of individualism, and there's just so many factors at play. But I do think that when it comes to many of the distrust and experts in the modern day, a lot of it might have more to do with the social factors of groups and vacation of groups. Yeah, that's true. I guess when I ask that question, I'm assuming that my experts are everyone's experts. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I know the experts, yeah. (laughs) Which is a bias in itself. So one of the studies that we spoke about with YC was his study on unrealistic optimism. My PhD is on <laughs> the optimism bias. So one of the things that makes optimism bias so interesting is that nearly all the other biases we have lead to negative outcomes. Like they're not biases that help us. There's biases with gender, these kind of things that aren't good. But people with optimism bias, they live longer, they have better relationships, they earn more money, all these kind of things. So you end up 
having a better outcome. And it would be like, wouldn't you think that rather than having a bias to make the best decisions and to come to the best outcomes, you should see the world as it truly is (laughs) rather than this biased way. And yet you would initially think to weigh up evidence, it's better to see the real picture. But the thing is that if you have this optimism bias, so you expect things to have a better outcome than reality. So they do studies like they have someone estimate the percentage risk they feel like they are to get cancer and just say, if you say, oh, it's 30%, but someone gives you, they're like, no, it's actually 10%, you'll update your your risk of cancer to 11%. So you really update from that good information. Whereas if you estimate your risk of cancer to be 30% and then they say, no, it's actually 50%, you may only update it to 33%. So when it's bad information, you're less likely to update than if it's good information. So it'd be okay, well, if you see the world this way, why would it lead to better outcomes? And it's because if we think all of these things are better than is expected, we're way more likely to engage in these good activities. So a really good example is marriage. So the percent of divorce in marriage is 50%. But if you thought that the chance of your marriage working out was the same as a coin flip, you just wouldn't, (laughs) you wouldn't, well, I don't know about you, but you probably wouldn't get married. (laughs) Whereas if you go into marriage and you you estimate chance of divorce 10% or something like this, and you truly believe that, you're way more likely to get married. And if you're way more likely to get married, you're way more likely to enter into these relationships that could lead to long-term outcomes, lead to children, these support networks, these kind of things, which overall, okay, even if you end up getting divorced at the end, the things that happened along the way that were good lead to this better, this, these better life outcomes. So is this a bias that a lot of people have or is it a particular subset? So a lot of people have this bias and it's more that we unlearn it if we have things like depression and anxiety. So Mm -hmm. we are kind of born with this bias. Whereas if you have some, so I'm looking at anxiety and optimism bias, but there's been done a lot of depression and optimism bias and people who are depressed either see the world as it is. (laughs) So they truly think in their brain that 50% of marriages end in divorce or they have a pessimistic bias, so they think 80% of marriages end in divorce. So they're way less likely to engage in all these sorts of activities. That's really interesting because I feel like we also have this idea in psychology, or which I think has been shown, that bad is stronger than good type thing. Yeah, I was thinking that when, I think you mentioned that on, I don't know, we were talking about that recently. It And that's the other thing. Yeah, there's still a lot to learn about the optimism bias it's not like oh we know everything about it it's not that people who are optimistic don't learn from bad things but it could be that maybe they forget these things quicker so it could be if you're optimistic you do a talk five times right and one time it goes really badly you still learn from that experience but it may be that because you're optimistic you don't you don't then have that weighted to all your other times and you still think oh next time I go it'll be okay whereas if you're pessimistic you're like oh that fifth one that went badly now that's how you see your future talks going that makes sense that's interesting because also with the research that YC was talking about, because I didn't know that it was this bias that a lot of people had or that we're born with, but that with what we were saying that people do learn from bad things, but that maybe because with YC's study and how he was saying that people 
don't really learn that this advisor or this expert is actually not very helpful. I was thinking that also in the context, I don't know who the participants were, but people might think, oh, I'm participating in a psych study at this fancy university and they're telling me something and I probably just don't know. How should I know whether this person is actually good or bad? So I might as well put more weight into the prior of what the other people are telling me versus what I'm actually seeing. And maybe they think, oh, this is a hard task. So if the expert is doing this badly, then this is just really hard and there's no way I could do any better. So I was thinking maybe there's part of the context that people are also not updating as much because they're putting too much trust in the situation maybe. But also maybe they're not learning from it as much because they don't think of it as that bad. Like it doesn't cross a certain threshold at which it's actually influencing their life. Yeah, that's a really good point. And in a lot of the optimism bias studies, so there's been modeling with reinforcement learning and YC gave us a nice overview of what reinforcement learning is. They show that people have a higher learning rate from an outcome that's better than expected than worse than expected. So their learning rate for things that are losses is slower than a win. But yeah, this is a task in a lab, it's not a horrific event that's happened to you. So the way I think about it is this attending to the bad to learn. It's these, as you said, it meets a certain threshold. But in these other everyday life things, we learn more from these wins or this positive information or we expect this positive information. One last question. If there's any new stuff you're working on or anything exciting you'd like to share? Yeah, I think there are a couple of stuff brewing in the lab. The thing that's occupying my time and brain a lot is trying to understand what exactly it is that drives divergent interpretations between different political groups because of the timeliness of the issue, but also that I feel like the study that you mentioned um, where I show conservatives and liberals having different brain responses to videos is a good starting point, but doesn't really get at what exactly is actually being represented differently. One thing we're doing in the lab right now is to try to build language models of how a conservative would think and how a liberal person would think and try to use that to explain for a given word how is the representation different and do these differences predict eventual brain activity and just to give you a window into what we're trying to do is we're building these language models on specific text media so basically we build a model that's trained on conservative news sources you can think of this model as a person who grew up only reading conservative news sources, and we trained the same one on liberal news sources. Again, this is a person that grew up only reading liberal news. And if you think about it, what is the outcome? These two types of models, what would they end up having stored in their model weights or how they represent words that might reflect particular biases in the meaning of a particular word or meaning of a particular sentence might then be dependent on what news sources they would train on. And just to give a very clear, to me at least, example that I think it's relevant to pretty much most left divides across the world, the sentence, we must keep our communities safe. That sentence, very innocuous, everyone would agree with it, but what it means is completely different depending on your perspective and background. And what we want to understand is, can we actually describe it? and not just rely on our intuitions. Because you have an intuition of what the differences are, but 
that might be specific to you, it might be specific to a small group of in-groups, but can we actually derive a quantitative and data-driven approach to really tell us when we say this sentence, this is what it means to the left, and this is what it means to the right. So that's something that I'm very excited about. I think there's a lot of promise, but of course, any researcher will know and ideas is only a specific percent of things. <laughs> Actual implementation, it's pretty hard and we're getting there actually. But I do think that's something I'm very excited about, both because of its implications for an increasingly polarized world, both increasingly globalized and polarized, which is crazy. But And also, I think a way to connect different branches of psychology and neuroscience in a way that I think that, I wouldn't say that hasn't been done before, no one else is working on, but I do think it's a very exciting frontier of the field. One of the things I really liked about YC's approach was, yeah, understanding that a lot of these biases and things that we have, there probably won't be just one reason why this is the way it is, or just one parameter in the model, or one bit of the brain or that is probably a lot of factors and I think that that's a really nice way to think about these kind of problems and approaching them as in oh we'll find one thing and that will explain this whole bias and that's that <laughs> yeah I think he was really nuanced and I think it also speaks to his methods because his methods actually allow him to be nuanced because he's yeah. working with the NLP stuff that he talked about at the end, that's going to be a lot of big data, but also pairing the neural data with the algorithms, like the decision-making algorithms, I think is also super powerful. It just speaks to how cool this research is and also how precise you can get and how much you can really answer a lot of questions with linking a whole bunch of methods the way that he does. Thank you to Dr. Yuan Chang Leong for joining us this episode. Our intro and outro music is Nobody Stayed for the DJ by Glacio. Our transition music is Back for More, also by Glacio. Minds Matter is mixed, edited, and created by Beth Fisher, she's the Australian one, and me, Ava Madasuza. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode of Minds Matter. In the meantime, find all our episodes and show notes on mindsmatterpodcast.com. Thank you.